You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. This episode is another in our series on national sovereignty and part two of our conversation on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Report on Russian Election Interference and Election Security in general with our friend of the pod, Andrew Perrine, and Megan Stiefel, the founder and CEO of Silicon Harbor Consultants, the senior policy counsel at the Global Cyber Alliance and the former director of international cyber policy and the National Security Council for the White House. Before we start the episode, just a reminder that on September 17th, the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security will be holding a breakfast event with Thomas Monheim, the general counsel of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency downtown in Washington, D.C., and we'll be having our two-day annual conference this November 7th and 8th. Check out our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, for more information on those two events and to sign up yourself. Now, let's join Megan and Andrew to talk about election security. I mean, it's certainly, you know, under the Homeland Security Act of 2002, Megan, it does say, um, you know, basically any system physical or cyber um, or asset that's so vital to the United States that their incapacity or destruction, um, which I don't particularly like those two words, um, would have a debilitating impact on our physical economic security. I don't know that um, incapacity or destruction is necessary. I, I don't know. I think that definition never anticipated the fact that, you know, just messing with the election system it may not destroy it, but it would manipulate it in such a way that it wouldn't function as intended. What are your thoughts on that? Do we need to really look more at some of these definitions? Probably. Um, I guess the question that I had, you know, to what end? And so, of course, the end might be that then the government can offer additional services. Um, I think, you know, if in this political climate, I would prefer to leave well enough alone frankly, um, because I do, you know, and we've had not similar, but there, um, the challenge with, with sort of expanding the scope of critical infrastructure to is where do you stop? So do you designate the internet critical infrastructure? And what does that mean? Does that mean that the government's going to be putting sensors on every single connection in the United States? You know, how does, how do we think about that from a fourth amendment standpoint? Um, you know, how do we think about that from a first amendment standpoint? So, um, yes, it's worth reconsidering and reevaluating in light of sort of the, the central role that in information and communications technologies play in our, in our, um, economy and our, um, social discourse globally. But I think we need to be careful, um, about how, how we go about that and, and, obviously being certain that we, we think carefully through the, the privacy and civil liberties implications of, of that kind of um, potential redrafting. So in terms of cybersecurity, what did the states do wrong here? What did government agencies do wrong with the way they approach these elections? Uh, first off, I don't know that I would say that there's um, an attribution of blame uh, any more than would be blaming the victim. Uh, security operations center operators throughout the entire world are overwhelmed with what we call alert fatigue. 
um, and it's identifying what are the actual uh, threats or activities that need to be investigated more deeply uh, and, and pose, pose greatest risks to the systems. Um, and, and I don't believe it would be fair to treat our state election officials any differently. Um, I think, uh, I think so, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them the benefit of the doubt on alert fatigue. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that this had not yet been raised, that there were uh, uh, great powers, foreign nations, targeting individual U.S. state election systems. Um, so, so again, I, th- I think it's a wake-up call, uh, and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, no finger-pointing, but I would argue that moving forward, uh, those states that do not take proactive action um, certainly... Um, I guess I don't know the answer, but 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 I think at that point it might be safer to point some fingers and say you did know you should have taken action. I think that's fair. Megan, do you have any thoughts on that? I think I would agree. Um, I was out there for Black Hat in what's called B sides Las Vegas, um, which if you're a policy geek, I would strongly encourage you to look at B sides. Um, one of the observations that my coworker shared was kind of the. The number of snake oil salespeople that are out there, not just to pick on, you know, I'm not picking on either any of those conferences. I, I think that they're great. Um, but you I are picking on great. snake oil salesmen. You can pick on snake oil salesmen. <laughs> I am going to pick on snake oil salespeople. So, you know, fueling like fear, oil. uncertainty, nobody, and doubt. Nobody likes a snake oil salesman. <laughs> right. They did, but you know so, it is. Except snake oil producers. Correct. Snake oil producers <laughs> love snake oil salesmen. <laughs> and snake oil, and um, excuse me, shareholders, right? They love they love um, snake oil salespeople. Well, but, but, but Megan, I mean, you fair, in fairness to you, where whoever these charlatans may have been, let me just say the report. You remember the states said they were afraid of vultures. Yes. They kept saying over and over again what they were afraid of vultures. People who were trying to sell them some sort of cybersecurity thing that would have no efficacy. Right. And in one case, we do know that, that, that I think it was either Kentucky or Tennessee, um, there is an organization that was basically a big fraud and ended up getting a contract from, from um, one of the, either the Secretary of State or, or um, uh, the election um, director's office. So the point being, um, these folks are, do not have a tremendous amount of experience. These folks being the the, the, the town auditor or whomever is running the, the election uh, process. And it's unfortunate that they're being bombarded by folks who are selling snake oil. And then when you have organizations, and this will be a unpaid um, surface announcement, that GCA actually developed a toolkit for, for election security infrastructure. Um, it is a free toolkit. Uh, it's Whoa, based off of... It's free? Free. Um, it is free. It is publicly available. If you go to um, the Global Cyber Alliance and go under what we do, uh, it is posted there. There are nine simple toolboxes that actually are based off of the Center for Internet Security's critical controls. And those are basically 10 actions that organizations, best practices that organizations should take, not just election offices, but everyone um, that, that has a network of, of a decent size, um, can take to significantly reduce cybersecurity risk. In some studies, it's been reduced cybersecurity risk by 85%. And these are, they're simple, basically hygiene practices. Um, so what this toolkit does is rather than saying you should implement two-factor authentication, it says, this is how you do it. And it has a video that walks somebody through how to implement two-factor authentication step by step by step. Likewise with turning on automatic updates and setting backups. So I don't want to, I don't want to hijack the podcast to make a big plug for GCA, but, um, <laughs> I do think it's a you know it's a really valuable tool, and we would love um, for for the word to get out about it because it, it's 
based on good stuff. <laughs> um, but so then back to the bigger point, um, I think, you know, we did see this proliferation of, you know, the um, EAS and the NASET and NAS and, and why, how, how do we manage all of these different organizations? Um, in my experience in, in working to support the development of the, t- the election security toolkit, those um, working through those organizations is a way to um, reach the, the stakeholders who matter most. And in some ways, these organizations work as gatekeepers to, pr- to keep the snake oil salespeople out. But that assumes a lot. That assumes that the, the, the NASA's and the NASA members themselves can spot snake oil versus a good thing. So um, that's what I have to say about it. Well, okay. Um, well, well, let's just pivot for a second because I know that um, you have some thoughts on what the Russians have done previously and what this could have looked like. Um, what happened? Uh, what happened in Ukraine and Estonia? I think, you know, in one case, we have, you know, the use of targeting of, of um, electrical systems and other, um, other critical infrastructure in the Ukraine. Um, a number of times, Georgia was also uh, kind of a proving ground, some people think, for, for Russian uh, intelligence and, and other capabilities to test their, their skills uh, and their ex- expertise. Estonia was sort of the first, um, and Georgia followed not long thereafter. Estonia was in the late, um, let's see if I get the year right, 2006, I think. Um, I may have that wrong. But essentially, in that case, uh, a number of of, um, newspapers and a couple of governmental websites and a couple of of private banks' uh, websites were rendered inaccessible by, by Russian actors. And so there is, you know, Back to what Andrew mentioned earlier, and I think I touched on as well. We don't we don't know what the intentions in this particular activity were. Was it to get caught to hold us so that we knew that something that we value was placed at risk, was held at risk? Um, were they testing this so that they could actually potentially maybe make a European partner actually the primary target? And, and in that case, will they actually try to manipulate a vote in in Europe? Um, it it remains to be seen. Do that with Brexit? Just kidding. <laughs> Um, yeah, they, I mean, they, so there's, there's, I think all of us know that there's, there are a number of reasons for concern in this particular, in this particular case, I, I would not rest my laurels or be, be, I don't think we should at all feel more comfortable because we didn't see a lot of trouble in 2018, um, in the midterms at the same time though, you know, I wonder, you know, it may be another 2020 may also be a quiet term, um, sort of, uh, Elections, some will say that, that while Russia didn't have a view as to who they wanted to win the presidential election, I think some people think that they're quite happy with, with the, um, the president that they got, so they might actually not try to, to manipulate things in 2020. Maybe they'll, they'll stay quiet until 2022 or 2024 when they know that they can stir the pot even more um, and potentially, you know, if their candidate is, is one that they perceive as better knows what might happen um but yes sorry that was a bit of a tangent there but i mean i think that they prefer to test their capabilities before kind of finally executing a more complicated and more um damaging action or or operation so there's lots to be concerned about yeah i'm i'm not one to perpetuate conspiracy theories or cast aspersions but i you know i did read that um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell did not bring to the floor 
a new election security bill um, that would sort of um, address some of these concerns that were identified. Uh, and that sounds bad. I'm not, you know, I'm not a, an election security expert, but it was of concern to me as an American. So, Megan, what, what, what would that bill have done? And, and I mean, it, there were already a lot, there was lots of money appropriated, right? I mean, prior to that bill, over $300 million to the states to uh, shore up their systems and work on their election security? Yes. And so, last I checked, there, there while well, a lot of that, that funding has been appropriated, not all of it has actually been dispersed. Um, so, we do have, I think, some of the continuing dynamics that we hear from. Um, the White House uh, potentially at play in connection with um, releasing funds as well as bringing bills to the floor for consideration that would actually make a meaningful impact in both making available resources but also potentially setting some of these um, making available some of these minimum criteria and other things Um, McConnell's uh, the bill that I think he is refusing to bring to the floor is the financial support for elections infrastructure. Um, and it's risk limiting audits is, is one element of the, the bill. And, you know, if you talk to folks at the, I think at the EI, ISAC and, and others, I know um, MITRE, for example, is also working around uh, the value and the importance of risk limiting audits. Um, so it's unfortunate that we don't have uh, federal push to, to implement some of the best practices that we know would make a, make an impact here. And so, what you're saying, because that, like, looking at the uh, looking at the text of the bill, I see that um, in part two, which was uh, address the grants to carry out improvements, um, subtitle B talked about risk limiting audits, and we'll hyperlink um, the text of this statute in the notes to the cast. So that people can take a look at it. And so what you're saying is, I guess this goes far uh, beyond just appropriations. It appears to attempt to bring some structure um, to the state process and some assistance. But in particular, with the the audits that are intended to help the states identify where they might have a problem. Right. The risk limiting audit happens after the election, and you sample a small set of, of ballots cast to see with a with a backup, as I understand it, and uh, sorry, with a backup, with a um, potentially a paper ballot or some other uh, paper audit trail to see if what was cast at the ballot box matches with what was recorded. And by that sampling, you then assess whether or not there is reason to go back and, and review greater ballots to make sure that a number, a broader number of, of samples to see if there was an actual issue or if it was purely uh, minor. Um, so I think we'll, you know, we're, we're, a lot more can be done. Um, and I think we'll, we'll probably get into the recommendations of the report, um, which I, that I believe was one of the um, recommendations of the SISI report. Yeah, and I would say to Yvette's um, point, it does seem when you look at Section 202 of that bill, which required the testing of existing voting systems to ensure compliance with election cybersecurity guidelines and other guidelines. I'm assuming that's a reference to the uh, national standards and technology guidelines. Um, that it's difficult to understand why anyone wouldn't want that to happen. <laughs> yeah. So there's not any new legislation currently going on at this time. But speaking of those recommendations, there were both findings and recommendations put out in this report that Congress could 
take on board. So what were those main findings, Andrew? Sure. So, yeah, so we, we talked about the main finding was that there was a sustained exploration uh, and reconnaissance uh, and, and Russian activity uh, that, that they attributed to Russia in this report uh, on U.S. election systems up and down the architecture. Um, the key things, I think, that come out of this are very similar to what we've been talking about. Improving state assistance is the thesis, uh, that the federal government can take actions to defend uh, these infrastructures. Um, you know, on the, uh, the four key buckets, first bucket is deterrence. Um, I would say that this requires kind of a change in doctrinal thinking, that um, a cyber act by an opposing foreign country does not require a cyber response by the United States federal government. So uh, probing activity or an attack or an attempt to change vote tabulation could easily be viewed as an attack on critical infrastructure of the United States uh, federal government and could be responded to with any of kind of the four main buckets of power, be they diplomatic, intelligence, military, economic sanctions, you name it. Um, And I think that's how you start having a deterrence policy that works for cyberspace, and they make that clear. Secondly, uh, improving information gathering and sharing. Um, already we talked about a few activities uh, that the federal government has undertaken to support that. Um, that's going to be a change in practice. Uh, I was at the DEF CON conference this summer. Uh, they have Look a, at you. Oh, it was They're great. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good. And, and um, I've actually never seen so much goodwill uh, between kind of the, the, the self-titled uh, hacker community, independent security researchers, and participants from the federal government. DARPA sponsored a program inside the voting village. Uh, to create an open source tool that would help independent researchers identify vulnerabilities to inform uh, voting company manufacturers of those vulnerabilities. So, um, yeah, so that was good. The third, uh, securing the election systems themselves uh, and, and in kind of the... The world and 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 the joke is uh, at DEFCON this year was anytime somebody said the c word uh, was cyber, um, but I'll say this that within this information security community or cybersecurity, uh, hardening perimeters, hardening systems uh, is going to be an aspect of that. And this report makes some uh, defined recommendations for the states uh, from the committee. Uh, and then lastly, uh, also along the lines of what we've been talking about, securing the vote itself, each independent vote. Uh, having a level of trust in its um, accuracy for the individual voter, uh, trust that it is auditable. Uh, They talk about uh, things like audit records, paper logs, uh, and importantly, very old-fashioned 17th century things to talk about, like documented chain of custody. Where did the vote go? Who who retained it? Um, and, um, and, And again, fundamental thesis being improving state assistance and making recommendations for increased federal funding to support these activities. Do you all have an opinion about whether the recommendations that are offered in the report can be followed absent legislation or will be followed absent legislation? Um, For example, the audits are recommended, but those tend to be quite expensive. Megan, can we start with you? Sure. So um, I think some of the recommendations will be followed. Um, Things like... um, Including voter registration database recovery and state continuity of operations plans um, is essentially one way of interpreting that is basically make sure you have a backup and have a, a plan to to access your backup. Um, and without legislation, there may not be as much money, but I think even without money, there's still attention. And I 
I think I've mentioned before, there are a number of resources out there for election officials to to begin to implement some of these recommendations. One set of resources is more at the policy level that comes from the Belfer Center um, and an organization affiliated with it. Another resource is the resource that my organization has put forward, which is a cybersecurity toolkit for election security offices, which walks folks through step by step a number of these recommendations. Um, certainly, it would help to have um, additional support and, I hate to say, a pressure put on uh, election officials to implement these um, best practices and recommendations uh, that are included in the SISI report, and that could come from a group of voters. Um, certainly, you know, uh, some people say this wheel gets the grease, so um, I don't think legislation is required. It would certainly help. Andrew, what are your thoughts? My thoughts uh, have largely been around what the findings and recommendations of this particular report were. Uh, I think it's an excellent bipartisan starting point to have conversations about uh, how we as Americans view elections infrastructure. And again, um, when we talk about election infrastructure, we're talking about electronic infrastructure and ways to count and record votes uh, and ensure that they represent the people's will, as opposed to things like social media campaigns, which would be another chapter uh, in the series. Um, and, and I guess my, my bottom line assessment is this is an excellent starting point, and I'm not sure that new legislation is needed, but action is undoubtedly prescribed uh, within the four corners of this report. All right. Well, for what it's worth, I sincerely hope that this has uh, woken everybody in the country up, made us value our free and fair elections, and want to protect this uh, uh, democratic institution that has served us well for way more than 200 years at this point. So um, anyway, I also want to thank Megan and Andrew for joining us tonight, and we hope that you'll come back soon. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Uh, just remember to hit the subscribe button uh, on your listening app of choice and to rate us on whatever platform that you would like. Uh, we're glad that you came, glad that you listened, and it would be really great if you would also subscribe. We want to remind you that foreign influence campaigns are, you know, as Andrew said, they've been around for centuries. Even if the threat vectors and possibility for amplification, um, those tools have changed. Um, this is not new, and to that point, when you finish reading the report that we're going to hyperlink on the Russian election interference, so we want to encourage you to go ahead and listen to the podcast uh, about that threat to the judiciary, and our guests that night, very importantly, were Suzanne Spaulding, who was counsel to Sissy. Um, she has also been uh, an undersecretary at DHS who was responsible for dealing with a lot of cyber policy issues. Um, but importantly, one of my favorite people, Elizabeth Brinskoff Parker, I mean, just think about this. I mean, she became one of the first women, maybe even the first woman general counsel of NSA, CIA. Um, she's gone on to be the dean of a law school. She's just an amazing woman. You ought to listen to this because, um, frankly, it's brilliant. We'll hyperlink it. Um, and uh, we're really glad that you tuned in tonight. We're really glad that you're educating yourself on this, and we invite you back next week. Um, when we have the second part of the podcast and when we begin to talk about another report on foreign influence, and that's about all I'll say about it at this time. You can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles we've mentioned uh, during this episode on AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. You can also drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or on Facebook. 
We welcome your feedback. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.